welcome. It's Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital. Welcome to Medically Speaking. The last time I was on was a few weeks back. You actually listened to a tape two weeks ago. Hopefully you listened to a tape. Did run, right, Johnny? We did. We had a tape run. So you had a best of broadcast. I was actually away at a Spirit of Women um, conference down in New Orleans. First time for myself down in in, uh, that area in New Orleans. I can't tell you that. I loved it. It was a little bit different. Definitely, definitely, definitely different environment down there. But the Spirit of Women uh, conference was incredible. We have a great program set up for 2018, we believe. A lot of work to be done, but I think the programming will be incredible. But until 2018 starts, we have great programming that will be coming your way for the rest of this year. I believe our next program is October 19th, and that will be at La Bella Vista. And it's called Generate Health, and we will have a panel and more to follow on that. And then we'll have another program um, for the millennials um, at Naugatuck Valley Community College. So more to follow on that, but definitely some great things happening with Spirit of Women. So tonight, I wanted to highlight one of our newest physicians for the Franklin Medical Group. It is a cardiologist, and it is another female, which we're really excited about. And this is Dr. Mariam Azim. Hi, Dr. Azim. Hi, Robin. Thank, thank you. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. So we really wanted to um, get Dr. Azim out to the community so everyone would know that we have a brand new cardiologist, but we've definitely been keeping her busy. Um, Dr. Azim joined Dr. Kelly, Dr. Rebecca Scandrit, Dr. Michael Malenix, Dr. Kat, Dr. Kevin Kett, and Dr. Joseph Nanaraj um, joins them for the Franklin Medical Group Cardiology team. She received her medical degree from... Aka Khan University Medical College in Pakistan. And in 2014, she completed her internal medicine residency in a cardiology fellowship with the University of Connecticut. So she came up here to Connecticut. Yes. And I said, why Six Connecticut? Yeah, I said, why Connecticut? And she said, well, my head family reason. Because <laughs> I didn't know if from Pakistan you just choose Connecticut. Yeah. Well, it was because I had family in the area. But... Um I didn't even know about Connecticut before that. You didn't even know about no. So how is Connecticut different from Pakistan? It's very different. It's very different, right? <laughs> the food's different. I miss the food more than anything else. You miss Pakistan. the Pakistani food. Is there no? There's no Pakistani restaurants for there you. There is, but it doesn't taste the same as. Doesn't taste the from same. Back there. But you have your mom that you got here to help oh, cook yeah. for My you. My mom's awesome. I haven't cooked in such a long time. <laughs> that is so wonderful. Yeah, she brought her mom up to help with her daughter. Yeah. And now her mom does her laundry, her cooking, <laughs> and babysitting. So that's incredible. So it allows yeah. you to be a star cardiologist for us. Yeah. Well, my mom. Mom's great. She allows me to be a mom and a cardiologist both, and it's awesome. I love but it. But we have a really strong um, Pakistani culture here. We have a lot of Pakistanis there that is. live in our area yeah. that are usually physicians. Yes. Right. So yes. you all, so you all network. I know Dr. Yeah. Chima is one of your friends, right? Yes, she is. Dr. Rabia yeah. Chima, who I just had on the radio a few weeks back, <laughs> primary care physician. This. Yeah, she's a primary care physician with us. So it's really neat that you did have some peers here that you could connect with. Yeah, it was great. I um, when I went to residency, actually, I had a lot, a lot of people that I went to medical school with training with me. So it was good. It was good to have that support, um, and I love 
being here in Connecticut at UConn, both for residency. Um, I stayed on for fellowship after my residency, and that was awesome. I think it's I think it's incredible that we have another female cardiologist to our mix. You're complimenting Dr. Rebecca Scandrett, who's been with us for a while now, our interventional uh, cardiologist, and you handle general cardiology, correct? Yes. So before we get started, and I d- definitely want to invite people to call in 203-757-1320. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, you said something just a few minutes before we went on about um, how you go to medical school in Pakistan, and it's right after high school. Yes. I That's went to- really incredible to me. Yeah, I went to medical school when I was 17. Oh, my God. It's just amazing so, to me. So you decide very early on what you, you want to do. do. Yeah. And you were saying you had to go to engineering or card, or you had to go to medical school, right? You <laughs> well, have a those choice. are the limited options you have <laughs> back there. <laughs> yeah, but, that's, but. It's, but it's competitive also, right? Yes. It's incredibly medical school's competitive. It's very competi- competitive yeah. there. And then when you finish, which is why... You, ch- you have to choose a residency outside of Pakistan. Usually you move outside of Pakistan to come. Um, it depends. Where I went to medical school, a lot of people um, come to the U.S. to train for, for residency and then they, they want to stay on for a fellowship. Um, so I came here. Um, I chose to do internal medicine. Um, so I came here, trained at UConn for three years. And then you could practice internal medicine after that, after you graduate residency, or you could choose on to do a subspecialty. And that's right. when I chose cardiology. Chose cardiology. So why cardiology? Because I loved it. You it loved was, it. Yes. It was... Um, it's very interesting, um, and it's very gratifying. There's so much you can do for patients, and there's yeah. so much you can change with regards to clinical outcomes. Um, you truly feel like you're making a difference to yeah, people's lives. It's so important, so. and you know, we talked a little about, bit about what direction we wanted to take, and I know Dr. Paul Kelly was hounding me, why are we going to talk about women and heart disease? <laughs> but, you know, it's a natural fit for our Spirit of Women audience, but definitely don't want to... To neglect the men in our audience, mm-hmm. but I will go down both roads because I think it's really important. So, mm-hmm. you know, you chose cardiology and you see a variety of patients, mm-hmm. I'm sure. But one of the things that for women that I think is always out there that women talk about or that the women's magazines talk about is women tend to come in at much later stages with problems, cardiac problems, because they ignore them or they're unrecognized because it masks by other things. Can you elaborate a little bit? So for most part, um, cardiac disease or what's more commonly known in the general population as heart attacks Mm -hmm. are um, thought to be more of men's disease, right? Right. Women don't generally think of themselves as having heart attacks. one is because there's a, the protective factor of estrogen. So right. um, women generally, younger women, um, compared to men of the same age group, are a relatively lower risk. Mm. So Because the, of the estrogen. Because of the estrogen. Mm-hmm. But uh, post-menopause, the prevalence of cardiac disease in men and women is quite similar. Um, so all of so, a sudden they become equal. Right. Mm. Um, so um, historically... More of the research, more of the data, more of the talk has been with men and heart disease. And that's why women don't think in those terms. And um, I think to some extent, clinicians don't think in those terms. um, That they're more likely to think about cardiac disease or coronary heart disease with men than with women. Um, The other is atypical presentations for women. Mm. So men will come to you more often with their 
crushing substernal chest pain, shortness of breath, um, come in sweaty with the very classic symptoms mm. of a heart attack. Uh, whereas women will sometimes come in with atypical features. They will not come in with your classic chest discomfort. They might come in with something they chalk up to reflux disease right. or belching or nausea or feeling dizzy or lightheaded mm. or feeling tired. Mm. Um, so it's different clinical presentations, which is why the diagnosis is later. And that when the diagnosis is later um, for that heart disease, the treatment gets delayed. Um, and we like to say in cardiology that time is muscle. Mm-hmm. The more time you lose, the um, the more the risk, uh, the, the more the damage right. to the heart muscle. Um, so I think it's very important for both the clinicians and the general population to recognize that right. women, um, that cardiovascular disease is a leading killer for women in the United States, similar to, to that so of scary. men. It is. Yeah. It's really scary. You know, you said a couple of things, and uh, so I want to I want to go back and, and address them. So when you talk about some of those signs and symptoms that are atypical, do you think, as a medical community, primary care physicians have generally gotten somewhat better and not ignoring those. Do you think maybe in the past we didn't recognize them as much, but now that we know more? Yeah, we, we definitely have better recognition now, mm. both um, out in the community and um, for patients who come into the emergency department. There's definitely better recognition, and there is that thought where, um, where clinicians recognize that women, too, get coronary heart disease, and they're also at risk for cardiovascular disease. Um, I think for patients to understand and uh, in the community to understand and recognize themselves that in themselves to present to your doctor or to your to the hospital right. um, is also very important to not go on and um, ignore your symptoms or chalk it up to to things if you know your body better than anybody else absolutely does. Um, so you should know when try to recognize when to come in or when to to get evaluated when not to ignore them you know when i had dr chima on a few weeks back um the topic was um really your doctor will hear you now was actually the name of it mm-hmm. and we talked about the conversations that happen with the primary care physician and the patient and one of the things that i think is so important with women in heart disease is having that annual physical with the primary care physician and having those things that need to be watched and looked at to see if there's changes and the doctor at that point will know when there's a change and a difference so in in the so to recognize those atypical signs soon enough. Right. And um, the other important thing, Robin, with with going to your primary care doctor and with having those regular visits, um, even if you don't have symptoms, you have risk factors mm-hmm. and identifying those risk factors because a lot of your risk factors are modifiable. Mm-hmm. If you have diabetes and you manage that better or recognize it earlier, um, or if you have high blood pressure and you recognize and manage that earlier, um, mm-hmm. or if you have a strong family history and you meet criteria for being on, say, a cholesterol-lowering medication. Knowing all those things makes a difference to your risk of cardiovascular disease. So let's look at the risk factors. So family history, let's go with that because that's usually the simplest, right? Right. But what is, if you look at a woman, if her paternal side has the stronger family history or her maternal side what is it because with breast cancer we tend to look more at the maternal Maternal, side than the paternal side is heart disease different or no um it's not 
whether it's paternal side or maternal, is it does not matter. Doesn't matter. Um, what does matter is if the age. The age. So okay. the younger the age in women, we generally take um, what we uh, recognize as premature coronary artery disease is if some if a first degree relative had um, um, a coron- an acute coronary syndrome before the age of 65, mm. or men in the family before the age of 55. So. Um, if somebody had a parent who had a heart attack at the age of 80, it's not quite the same as them having that at an earlier age. It's right. still a risk factor, but that's not premature coronary artery disease. That's not disease. premature. And what, we, what we worry about a lot is premature disease. Yeah, that's so important to know. Those yeah. numbers are really important to know. Yeah. And numbers. Yeah. So we talked about this earlier. One of the other risk factors you talked about was blood pressure. So I think that blood pressure is just one of those things that's just been all over the place. And just all the articles I've read, even through the American Heart Association, there's so many different values out there. And the values have seemed to change. I mean, when I was in nursing school, a good blood pressure was 120 over 80. And now in some cases, they're saying, no, that's too high. Um, So with regards to numbers for blood pressure, um, like you said, there's been a lot of controversy, and there's a lot. There's been a lot of studies out there, um, and guidelines which which give you numbers. Um, a lot of the times, so generally for a general population with no other risk factors, we're looking at pressures like systolic blood pressures, like 140s, um, with diastolics of 90s. If they're patients with chronic kidney disease or they're patients with diabetes, then you're looking at maybe something around 130s. Um, hmm. But when we're looking at blood pressures, um, I feel it's for individual patients, and clinically speaking, it's more of a range. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's more of what works for that patient. And a lot of clinical medicine really is about that because um, if you're spitting out only numbers, a computer can do that and fix, you know, you haven't reached this number, let's bring it down to this. But as a clinician, you look at the individual patient. I always like to say you treat the patient, not the disease. So you see what works for that patient. What is that patient able to tolerate? Mm. If my patient is dizzy and lightheaded and is at risk of passing out because their blood pressure is too low um it doesn't matter right the number does not matter what matters is i mean you know what matters is how the patient's doing clinically so you cater to the individual patient's need as well you and you do go by the guidelines and you go by the guidelines and blood pressure is so reactive too so it's reactive to you know stress levels it's reactive to so many different things and i know they say you know if a patient loses weight you tend to generally bring down that blood pressure and get it to a better manageable you know, pressure based on their weight loss. Mm -hmm. Do you work with patients to encourage them to lose that weight too, to help with that and all the other clinical implications the weight make? Absolutely. It's um, like I talked about with risk factor modification, it's, um, it's everything. You take Mm -hmm. the person, you take the patient as a person. Um, So, um, I always like to think of my patients as real life people, you know, and I try to try to try to see who they are and what works for them. So weight loss, um, teaching pe- people, you know, a lot of people don't recognize that they're overweight or mm-hmm. they need to lose weight. Mm-hmm. You know, they say the people feel like they're okay until right. you actually show them, you know, this is not a healthy weight for you um, or talking to them. You know, t- I like to explain to people, um, this is why I want you to lose weight or this is the difference that it's going to make mm-hmm. or this is precisely what I want you to do. You know, you should eat this or make these choices. If you're eating bread, 
eat brown bread instead of white bread or if you're choosing to eat rice have brown rice instead of white rice mm. um, if you want chicken have baked chicken instead of fried chicken right. um, because because you want them to know that this is this is the plan and this is what's going to make a difference right um, and it does you know when you sit down with a patient and talk to them about right. it it makes it makes a difference so we're talking a little bit about food and diet. So I'm, I'm going to use, I, I want to understand. So from the culture you came from, from Pakistan, mm-hmm. and you come here to the United States, they always say once people leave their home country and they come here, they generally, and you're a tiny, you're a tiny but when <laughs> people come here, they generally would put on weight because the American diet is such a bad diet. So looking back at Pakistan, what, what are some of the difference? What are some of the things that we can teach people here? So the first thing I noticed when I came here um, was everything is oversized. Yeah, big. Everything. Portion control, right? <laughs> Portion control, right? right? Have uh, whatever you eat, control that. I mean, it would be hard if I told somebody, don't eat this, period. Right. You know? um, have options, but that's that's one major thing. Everything is huge here. Everything's Serving. huge. Everything is unlimited. Yeah. You know? Soda's unlimited. Soda. There's free refills for everything. Yeah. There's, um, so those are the things. A lot of um, your fast foods, mm. fried, a lot of patients, especially patients with heart failure, don't mm. recognize there's, they eat out one night in a restaurant and get admitted with shortness of breath and acute heart failure the next day because there's a lot of salt in the food that you eat at restaurants. Um, and yeah, no, so that could happen just like in a night? Yeah, absolutely. So... Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, Hey, I think we got a call from Paul Kelly. Oh, he did it, didn't he? <laughs> we're going to unfortunately have to stop you because we have a caller that we okay. thought we were going to block. <laughs> oh. oh. Hello? Hello? Hi. Hi, Dr. Kelly. <laughs> Hi, Miriam. Hey, Robin. Yes? I just wanted to say that uh, I, I hope the listeners appreciate um, the... The, the clinical skills of Dr. Azim. Uh, I, she is um, a young person, a young clinician, who is remarkably uh, seasoned and, and has the wisdom of a, of a much more experienced clinician uh, at a very young age. She's incredible. Uh, she uh, she has you, been uh, extraordinarily trained and, 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 uh, is, and has the kind of a mind that absorbs so much when she Listening to the show right now, I hear her talk about treating each person as an individual and not treating two numbers. That is um, a, a, that's a seasoned clinician. That's somebody who who understands that the guidelines and the numbers really are, are are there to help us, but they don't strictly guide decisions we make for individual patients. The fact that she's even talk, talking that way to me uh, is extraordinary. And I got to say, I'm very, very proud to have her as a member of our team. And uh, she's a wonderful addition to a group of people that I'm extraordinarily proud of with Dr. Kent and Dr. Skandert and Dr. Nanaraj and Dr. Malinix. It's a, it's a fantastic team, and um, I'm glad you didn't block me. No, we didn't block you. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Kelly, and it's a pleasure to be here. I've loved, well, loved being uh, here. Carry on. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a great show. And, Robin, okay. thank you for everything you do and and. and I know Johnny's Johnny there. Johnny's here. Yeah, tell him I said hello and, hey, Dr. and thank Kelly, everybody. How you doing? <laughs> Hi, Johnny. Well, thanks. 
thank everybody at ATR for, for um, what they do for St. Mary's Hospital. Thanks, Johnny. Thank you. Okay. All right. Bye. Have a great night. Bye. Bye. So that's okay. We didn't have to block him because he was good. Because he was good. But, you know, I, I have to echo what Dr. Kelly said because how I measure an incredibly skilled clinician, Dr. Kelly, I said clinician, <laughs> this incredibly skilled clinician is to come in here. She's one of the few um, clinicians that have come in here with no notes and just herself. And that's so incredible to me because she's never doesn't need anything but conversation to have it come from her heart and her experience. So even at this, as he said, a very young age, she's incredibly well-skilled and knowledge and it comes across. And, you know, I think in today's world, when it comes to medicine, we want to have somebody that will listen to us and treat us as an individual and not as something that's just coming up on their computer. Yeah, absolutely. And that, um, and I think that's that's what attracted me to medicine mm. in the first place. That's why I went to medical school. I um, I love knowing my patients. You know, mm. really knowing what's their what's their goals. What do they want? Um, my, in my opinion, the goal is not for for an individual patient. Like when you care for patients um, who are end of life, mm. you know, or have advanced heart failure. Um, I think as clinicians. A lot of the times we are taught the longer your patient stays alive, the better it is. But sometimes that's not your patient's goal. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they want to feel good. Sometimes they want to be comfortable. Sometimes, so I think it's the, the most important thing that we can do as clinicians is to recognize what the patient's goals are. What do they want to do? What is important to them? Not what is important to, to, to us. us because every individual is different um, in different ways in life in general. So when it comes to medicine and when it comes to their body and their life, mm -hmm. they get to make that choice, just like with everything else in life. And mm -hmm. uh, you know, I feel that's, that's important. That's, um, that's what drives me, that's what motivates me, and that's how I take care of my patients. It's incredible, if you, if you don't have a cardiologist in, in your plan of care, I'm going to tell you this new treasure that we have here <laughs> at St. Mary's Hospital in the Franklin Medical Group, Dr. Mariam Azim, is definitely should be part of that plan for yourself. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back. <laughs> Welcome back, Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital. Welcome to another med episode, Medisode. Oh my goodness. Episode <laughs> of Medically Speaking. I was only away for a week or two and I can't even speak. So welcome to uh, Medically Speaking. And we are Medically Speaking tonight about cardiology because we are so blessed to have um, within the St. Mary's Hospital system and the Franklin Medical Group, a brand new cardiologist with us who happens to be female. Um, her name is Dr. Mary. Azim, and again, she joins Dr. Paul Kelly, who just called in, uh, Dr. Rebecca Scandrit, Dr. Michael Malenix, Dr. Kevin Kett, Dr. Joseph Nanaraj. We are building quite a team. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's all it's growing. People. It's, it's all awesome incredible, people incredible specialists within our cardiology team. And you guys are located at 1312 West Main Street. Right? Is it 1312? 1320. 1320. 1320? 
1320. I should know my location, right? <laughs> 1320. But I can tell you. That's where we are on the dial. That is 1320. That's right. 1320 and 1312. 1320 West Main Street. And their phone number 203-709-7300. Um, Dr. Um, Azim came to us how long ago? Um, it just started. You two just weeks started. Back. Yeah, two July week, 17th. July 17th. So she's brand new. But we did have you at our Spirit of Women event. Yes. We had. I came we there. Had, it came, was awesome. It was crazy, right? It was very right? well done, yeah. It's crazy, our yeah. Sparkle event back in May. So she was around. So we kind of grabbed her to, to get her feet wet and introduce her to some of the colleagues out there in the community. Yeah. It was it was a very well done event actually. I it was awesome. I'd never seen anything like that before. Yeah, it's a little it's huge. It's a little nutty. Anybody in our community that's participated <laughs> in the Sparkle event, it's definitely yeah. a lot. And we do um, some quarterly events, so we are going to grab you for our October nineteenth event. Okay, you'll be part of our panel of experts, <laughs> and I think women will so enjoy hearing from you. So we, when we ended, we were talking about some of the risk factors and. We were focusing on women, but as you were saying to me, a lot of the risk factors are the same for men or for women. Right. There's only one that's the difference, which yes. is the estrogen. Yeah. Um, so with regards to um, cardiovascular risk factors, um, I know there's a lot of talk. We talk a lot about estrogen and um the, the reason behind it is because there's that protective effect of estrogen on women, uh, where the, the prevalence of heart disease in women pre-menopause is less compared to men, and mm -hmm. it sort of equalizes as they reach menopause and after that. Um, so that's why there's a lot of talk about it. But that doesn't mean um, that that is the main factor that mm -hmm. drives um, cardiac disease in women because the other risk factors stay the same. The other risk factors are um, diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, mm -hmm. smoking. Smoking mm -hmm. is big and that's the, that's the biggest, most modifiable factor that we have out there, which is important it, for It's amazing to, to me that there's so many people out there that are still smoking. Yeah. After we know that it is such a risk factor. There's people... Um, we see who are smoking even after they've had stents, please, oh. after they've had heart attacks. Um, and that is bad. That's, that's the worst thing you can do to yourself, really, um, because there's so much data out there. It's not gray. It's black and white. You right. do not smoke. Not one cigarette, not two cigarettes. You go from a pack to one cigarette a day, that's great, but it has to be zero has to be zero. It has to be zero. It's good. I always encourage my patients when they cut down on the smoking, um, but I don't get off their back till they quit. Till smoking. they absolutely <laughs> quit. Absolutely quit smoking. It's so um, bad. Because that's so, that's so easily modifiable. Um, I, when I was training and um, taking tests uh, for like licensing exams and your boards and everything, um, every time, so one of the tips was um, every time you see smoking as an answer, choose that because that's the, that's always the the best thing that patients can do for themselves is right. to quit smoking. Is to quit smoking. To smoke. You know, we talked about diet because you definitely want to bring your weight down. It's and diet's hard because I think it's a habit. Yes, it's a culture thing. Sometimes yeah. it's also a stress reliever. Yeah, and I think smoking goes along those lines too. It's a habit. Right. It's an addiction. Yes. It's a stress reliever. Yeah. So when people stop smoking, sometimes they put on weight. Right. Which, and I think that's um, for, I've had patients, females specifically, come in saying, 
if you quit smoking, I've heard you put on weight. Right. Um, and that sort of deters them. But it shouldn't because you're doing yourself a lot more damage smoking. Right. No questions. Definitely. Um, and you can work on your weight with diet, with exercise, with your healthy ways to lose weight. Portion control. Portion control. Portion control, as you were saying. <laughs> I know my husband and I, when we've been going to restaurants, we've been ordering one meal yeah. and splitting it, especially at this one particular place that tends to give you too much. Yeah. And we're finding, we're even bringing home what we have left because it's still too much. Right. Which is uh, incredible. And I, it always amazes me when I go to restaurants that when people start, when I look at people around me, um, how you start from appetizers, Appetizer. those servings are huge. Then you go on to the main course, then you go on to dessert. Yeah. They're huge portions. Yeah. Um, and, and you need to, to control. And it's easy, you know, I can't walk into a patient's room and say, just you know don't eat this don't eat this don't eat this because it's easier said than done it's hard um but portion control is important have small meals have five small meals through the day instead of two large meals um so you don't hung you don't starve yourself you are eating and you're making the right choices if you starve yourself for you know for the whole day and then you come and I think uh, a certain part of us tends to feel you earn the right to the, that big meal. You earn right. the right to that soda, but you don't. So when so. you get a patient from a primary care physician who the patient either has high blood pressure or, you know, has some, they've done an EKG on them and they're seeing some changes on them and they they really need to be have them monitored by a cardiologist. These are all the things that you go through with them right, to get them back to a healthy cardiac Stage right, right, um, and it's it's a continuum. Right. So, your risk factors, the especially your modifiable risk factors, are things that you can work on throughout your life. Right, um, from as early as I mean, childhood obesity mm-hmm. is so prevalent mm. um, these days, especially in the United States. Yeah. Um, it's so sad to see these children because. These are the children who will go on to become young adults, who will have heart disease, who will have joint problems and hip problems because because that's that's such a modifiable risk factor, you know. Um, and then with with laptops and iPads, our kids are not, not going active, out. They're right? not active. Um, so those are important, and those are things you need to nurture from when kids are younger, right. and as young adults, and um, as uh, people out there generally, we need to get out more often often be more physically active, right. make better choices with regards to food. What do you, when you bring a patient in and you're doing their health history and you're looking at their risk factors, you're looking at everything that you've gotten from a primary care physician, and this is pre-heart attack. Right. When are you at the point where you need to intervene with medications? Like what, what are some of the determining factors for you? So um, it depends on what, what you're looking at. If we're looking primarily at um, coronary artery disease, so in simple terms, blockages in the heart vessels, mm-hmm. and we're identifying people who are at risk for those. Um, some are people who, who've already developed, like if they've developed diabetes or if they've developed high blood pressure, um, then you're treating those with medications. Um, if you recognize somebody who is pre-diabetic or whose blood pressure is borderline, um, or if somebody has an elevated BMI or they're um, overweight, you know, you can. those are things you can work on to mm-hmm. start with. Um, 
and then you see if if their diet and lifestyle modification is changing it. Right. Um, if something's not changing, um, or if it's already at the point like with the latest guidelines that came out for the statins or cholesterol lowering medications, um, there's a lot of people who meet the criteria for being on on statins if they're high risk or if they have diabetes or high blood pressure. So we don't wait for for those people because. Right. When you know when you put them on a statin, you're improving their um, statins. Their like chances. a miracle drug. They it's are one of the miracle yeah, drugs out there. it's almost like you add it to water. Right. A lot of people meet those criteria. In fact, I started my dad on. Did you really? On a statin. Yeah. My dad's one of those people who will not agree to taking any medications. He's like, I know how. I know I can deal with it. I can lose weight in five days. I can take care of myself. Don't that you need to be on the statin? You need to so be on the statin. Him, so what do you look at when before you put somebody on a statin? So if they have elevated cholesterol or elevated um, LDL, which is your bad cholesterol, and they can't um, modify it by diet, and they can't modify it by diet, if they have risk factors, um, if they have a family history of heart disease, mm. um, like in my dad's case, he had borderline elevated. Um, LDL and he has very strong family history. My grandfather had heart disease. Um, my uncles had heart disease, so he had a very strong family family history of heart disease. Mm. So that's when you start them. Um, if somebody's a diabetic, if they're a smoker, if they have high blood pressure, those are their risk factors. Um, and you put them. And statins have a protective effect mm. for those patients as well. Um, so there's there's a lot of people out there, and especially people who come to the cardiology office who meet. Um, those requirements for for being on statins, um, and there's only so much. There's if people are very good with their diet and exercise, um, they can modify maybe twenty percent of their bring down their levels by twenty percent. But they still need the statin. Um, but they still need the yeah. statin. I, I know my husband is definitely one of those, and it's so important. He has such a strong family history. Yeah, and no matter what you do diet, exercise, you still have those numbers that are elevated. Right. right. And um, the what you're looking at is um, stabilizing those plaques because we start developing cholesterol and we start developing plaques in our blood vessels very early on. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, even as young um, adults or adolescents right. is when it starts depositing. Um, so you want to modify all the risk factors that you can to work in your favor. To prevent a piece of plaque breaking off and causing a cardiac event. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's when you need to intervene. Now, someone that's had a typical heart attack Mm -hmm. and they come in um, to see you, what are you looking for post-heart attack with those patients? So um, you're looking... Somebody who's had a heart attack and they get a stent, say, in the hospital, and then come back um, to see you. You want to get your patients back into mainstream life. You know, Mm -hmm. getting a heart attack um, is bad physically. It's hard enough. But mentally and emotionally, I think it's very, um, it's huge. Patients are afraid, right? Patients are afraid. They're They're afraid to do anything, right? Um, And um, a lot of people equate heart attack with somebody's had a heart attack that means they're gonna die right um or like don't do anything with them they're almost they're so fragile you know right people come in can i still go to work can (laughs) i exercise it's okay if i walk the dog um so a lot of those first um appointments after hospital discharge is people asking what they can do can they Mm -hmm. live life and they can absolutely live their life um and use that i like to tell my patients this is your wake-up call. Mm-hmm. This is your time to make those changes and to recognize um, 
what I talk about a lot in those is um, about the importance of, of being compliant with their medications, about the importance of recognizing their symptoms. Um, because once somebody has had a stent, it does not mean that they're not going to have more heart disease. <laughs> that they cannot have another heart attack because they can. It's not, um, you know, I've had people think, oh, I had bypass, so I'm done. I'm all set. I don't need to They think do they have anything. a brand new heart rate. Good to right. go. We can but do the same don't. things we did. Right. You cannot. Mm. Um, you still have to work on those risk factors. You still have to take your medications. You still have to recognize your symptoms mm. um, because stents get blocked. New blockages develop. Bypass grafts can go down and get blocked. So that's scary, right? So it's it's. I think that's like, why people are scared too. Is this going to work? Is this going to stay? Yeah. But you still have to be incredibly compliant. You have to be compliant. And we're not that's the bottom line. We're not a culture of compliance. No, we do well for a while. We'll do well with our diet. We'll do well with exercise, and then we fall off track. Yeah, I mean that's human nature, right? I think the hard thing um, is when people feel good is it's hard to convince people to take medications because they, you know... Say feel better. Yeah, it's human nature. I feel good. What do I take these medications for? What do I need? Because they don't see the work that the medicine does behind, you know, behind the curtains. Right. So you don't, you miss that. Absolutely. So that's what's important to understand because you don't want to end up in the hospital with a heart attack. Right. Our goal is to keep you out of the hospital. Um, Our goal is to modify those risk factors. Our goal is to prevent that heart attack. And you, you said something early on, time is muscle, and we talk about that all the time. So yeah. uh, someone that maybe didn't have that timing, and there is some heart damage, how are those patients treated differently than someone that maybe you, you were able to stent early on? So that we're talking about different... Um uh, different types of t- heart attacks. That the heart attack that you're talking about, where time is absolutely essential, is mm-hmm. um, ST elevations mm-hmm. (MI), where uh, people will come in with acute closure of one of those heart vessels. Mm-hmm. Um, what we have now um, is great recognition, both in the field by EMS, by the ED physicians, um, and by protocols for activation of the cat labs, where we can, um, get very good door to balloon times, meaning the time the patient hits the emergency room to the time the patient gets taken to the cat lab and you put that balloon down and open the vessel. Um, So you save that muscle. So you save that muscle. Um, these days you don't see those complications Mm -hmm. of completed heart attacks. Um, one of my mentors and fellowship, um, uh, Dr. Clark, who I have great deal of respect for, taught me um, that when told me that when he was training, we did not have cath labs and um, and urgent PCIs, so they would actually sit and see these patients develop complications two weeks down the line, three weeks down the line, off massive heart attacks wow. with you know rupture of walls and um, people dying of mm-hmm. these heart attacks. So our interventional cardiologists, um, the EMS on the field, ED clinicians, everybody does a great job at recognizing these people and getting them treatment 
early on. Um, so we don't see those complications. So those complications, like congestive heart failure and, and all the things that go along with it, are yeah. so... We don't see that as much as we did in the past. It's still there, but right. we don't see it. We still see congestive heart failure. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, con- you know, but those acute complications right. of a vessel that's not open, of a heart right. muscle that dies acutely, right. you don't see. see but, um, but we still see a lot of heart failure. Um, and why and is that? What is that a result of? So heart failure is, there's two different kinds of heart failure. There's one heart failure, um, and I don't like the term heart failure. Um, I always, it's a disclaimer that I always tell my patients, it's not heart failure. It doesn't mean your heart is failing. It doesn't mean we can't do anything for you because there's a lot we can. Um, so the heart the failure, new generation. <laughs> so the Love heart it. failure that you see um, with heart attacks is oftentimes decreased function. So decreased contraction of the heart. Um, and then there's another type of heart failure which is often underrecognized um, is increased stiffness of the heart muscle. Um, there's two, there are two different kinds of heart failure and they both these are managed very differently. Um, and those patient populations over time when you see are different. Um, but um, for heart failure, um, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction where your um, heart is not contracting as well, we have a lot in with regards to therapies to help improve that function of the heart. Um, and our goal, again, for these heart failure patients is education, education, education. Let the patient know how to recognize their symptoms. Um, try to keep them out of the hospital. Right. Because the more admissions that they have into the hospital, it's not as simple as extra fluid collecting and us taking it off. Right. Every admission to the hospital damages the heart muscle further and makes the patient sicker. Which is why we have the pump club. Which is why we have the pump club, to keep our patients out where our patients can call in, let us know they have their weight gaining weight, let us know that they're not feeling well, um, and they can walk in and uh, be seen by a clinician, be seen by a nurse, um, and evaluated for their symptoms where they can receive IV Lasix or the IV form of the water pill to get rid of that extra fluid. Because, to help save that muscle. Right, to right. save that muscle, to keep them out of the hospital, to keep them healthy, and to let them have that support um, because it can be isolating. You know, right. To have heart failure um, or to be taking 12 medications a day um, can be hard. You need to have that support. Um, and I think our nurses and our clinicians do a great job at keeping those, you know, at supporting those patients and recognizing early symptoms of decompensation and managing that and keeping those patients so out. So part of our cardiology team is that we have this pump club at St. Mary's. So if you're a patient of one of our cardiology team, you can come right to St. Mary's Hospital and go right up to the outpatient therapy department. Right. Right. If you're yeah. one of our team's patients yes. and one of the regulars yes. and they, they will weigh you, they will take your blood pressure, they will do your blood work and um, consult with your cardiologist right. and get the order to be able to treat you right there and then. So you, so you avoid the emission and then you can go home. Yeah. You avoid going into the emergency room. Right. Um, and they have they have weekly meetings, actually, and they discuss, we discuss the patients and um, we try to evaluate and um, cater therapy based on individual patients. Well, that, I didn't realize that. So you guys as a team also meet about the patients, especially the patients that are going in. Weekly, yes. To go yeah. s- to the pump club. And identifying patients also who, who come into the hospital and who we feel would benefit from that additional support or um, would be a high risk for, for getting 
back into the hospital or developing more congestive because it's it's an ongoing process where you're trying to to recognize these people trying to support them right um, and trying to adjust their medications sometimes with those medications it can be a hit or miss so, so you know one thing might work for one patient but not the other one um, and it's amazing when the, when these patients get their education and they learn to recognize their symptoms, they know what they want. They do know um, what they want you know, and they're in charge. Hey doc, I gained five pounds. I had Chinese food so <laughs> I took an extra Lasix. <laughs> they know exactly what to do. <laughs> and I think that's, that's so funny. That's, um, that's awesome. When patients get to drive their care and when they get to recognize what's happening, why it's happening and why you're giving them something. When patients know why they're taking that pill, it works right. wonders. You know, Lasix, you know, just, I, I don't want to deviate too much, but Lasix is one of those medications that people do play with. Yes. And I understand taking it, an extra one, because she knew she, they knew they took Chinese food, but I don't think patients understand that you really need to take that every day. Yes. You can't just stop it because you're going out. Right. My mother did that. She said, well, I didn't take it because I knew we were going to be out on the road. As I see her ankles swell up. And now you're not because you're in the hospital. Yeah. So you ruined that trip for so, yourself. So, you know, I wanted to just put that yeah. point out there. It's so important yeah. to maintain a level with your Lasix right. because that helps to keep the fluid Absolutely. regulated. And then if you, if you don't take your Lasix and you gain that extra fluid, then your Lasix doesn't work because the fluid the edema it collects just like you can see it collects in your legs you feel it when you're short of breath it collects in your belly too Mm. and that lasix does not get absorbed and it it doesn't it's not effective so then you need to come in for iv iv lasix so that's why it's so important to keep that fluid off i didn't realize it collected in the belly too yeah it affects absorption so Mm. when patients are in failure or have that extra volume on board um, the lasix doesn't get absorbed as well that's it. That's incredible. I didn't realize that. Yeah. See, you taught me something. <laughs> you absolutely teaching me a lot of things. So I wanted to make sure that before we, because we're already at five up, mm-hmm. where does the night go? See how fast? Yes. <laughs> See how fast? We had a lot to talk about. So before the night goes, if you had a general um, tip, a takeaway for people out in the community talking to individuals that may not be seeing a cardiologist right now, but you know, if you talk about looking at those warning signs and what are some of the most important things you can leave them with, what would it be? I think the most important thing that I would say is make healthy choices. Mm. Um, before you come to those symptoms, prevent them. Eat well, take care of yourself, sleep, don't stress out. Um, and uh, you know just exercise exercise is the tough yeah. one yes it is and and to not take stress um mm. you know so stress is a lot yeah stress is part of everything we do i like to um hear something i heard somebody say something once don't take life too seriously you're not going to come out alive out of it anyway so, <laughs> so don't worry <laughs> that is excellent that's excellent advice and you did your fellowship um in saint francis also which is one of our uh, trinity, trinity yes. part of the yes. trinity health new england and they do have an integrative medicine piece and we talked a little bit about this yes yeah you know, and that's not that it is definitely, you know, sound medically, but it's a compliment. It is. It's complimentary and um, people like it. It makes them feel good. And that's that what stress we want level to, down. Yes. And that's what we want to achieve at the end of the day. We want our patients to feel good. 
Yeah, and definitely. Be happy, and know, it could be healthy. anything, right? It could be anything. It could be a walk. It could be a book. It could be sitting out on your deck. Yeah, just as long Relax. as it's not fried chicken. As long as it's not fried chicken. <laughs> that por- But you could have fried chicken, but... Once in a while. Once in a while. It's really bad. Yes. That's not one of the ones you can portion control. You shouldn't. You should stay away Even from one it. piece is bad. <laughs> Even one piece of that is bad. So I wanted to, um, again, remind everyone. So Dr. Miriam Azim is a cardiologist with the Franklin Medical Group, and they are at 1320 West Main Street. Um, phone number there, 203-709-7300. You can find her on our new St. Mary's Hospital website that just went live yesterday. It has all the same, pretty much the same information, but you're going to see the colors are a bit different. Um, we are now with our purple and green, which are our Trinity colors. It, it still has the St. Mary's Hospital symbol up there. And then you click on the Franklin Medical Group and click on specialty care and her picture and all of her information about Dr. Azim is listed there. So you can definitely find out more about her. And also her her colleague that she went to, she went to school with, Dr. Uh, Dr. Chima is on there under primary care. So I want to thank you, Doc, so much for coming here. And we're going to invite you to be part of the Spirit of Women um, panel in October 19th, which will be at La Bella Vista. More to follow on that, but I believe we're going to be doing cardiology. We're going to be doing breast. We're going to be doing rheumatology. We're going to be doing a lot of different things. So I think you'll be an incredible compliment to that team. So thank you. Thank you, Robin. I'll put it on your calendar now. Okay. So that we can't lose you. We um, want to thank everyone for joining us tonight. We do have, again, a program coming up October 19th that we you will definitely learn more about. And we also will be having um, a program in November, as I said, for Spirit of Women. We're going to be talking a bit about um, some 3D digital printing that we're doing at St. Mary's Hospital that has a lot to do with surgery. And that will be an incredible topic at Naugatuck Valley Community College. Johnny's giving me the, you only got two minutes left. So I got to make sure I get it all in. We will be back again next Friday morning. We will be talking about the great eight. And I will have on here a specialist talking about sleep. Grade eight meaning those eight hours of sleep that we don't tend to get as working men and women. I'll put men in there. (laughs) As working men and women and with our busy lifestyles not getting enough sleep. So we will have a specialist on next Friday at 930 in our Spirit of Women time slot and it's called the Great Eight. So we will have our pulmonologist specialist dealing in sleep medicine talking about that and some sleep medicine um, protocols we have at St. Mary's Hospital that can help you. So thank you so much for joining me. This is Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital. Exceptional care, every patient, every day. Thank you.